Joe's standards were pretty tough. Like he set the bar really high and I guess that's why he became the chief carpenter because he was really good. And, and the way it turned out was I got to be his helper. And since he knew that I was in seminary and um, that I wasn't a, a threat to his job security, like he taught me all kinds of stuff. You know, he would, uh, he would joke about, um, you know, seeing me on TV, asking him for all of his money and stuff like that. But anyway, we were um, renovating and restoring an, an old, like four-story, 200-year-old house in downtown Lexington, Kentucky. And so we were replacing a lot of stuff and, and um, trying to make it look like the original. And so he was teaching me how to, how to use the, the chop saw. And so there was this um, uh, beautiful millwork that had been done. We were replacing the trim on you know, all of the windows and doors. And, and so he was teaching me to, you know, to uh, measure it and, and cut it right. And, and he always said, you've got you to gotta measure twice and cut once. And I'm like, I've got it. And so um, I, I'm, I'm holding this really nice piece of wood and he's kind of looking at me sideways. Remember, you measure twice, you cut once. And I'm like, I know. And I measure twice and I cut. And I'm like, ah, that was like this quarter of an inch gap, you know, like where the pieces might meet over the frame of a door. And that really made him mad. He, he's just like, uh, you got you to gotta throw that in the trash pile and recut that thing. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, it's only a quarter of an inch. Like, can't we just use a, a caulking gun and, and just fix it? And he just kind of pulled me to the side. He said, he said, let me tell you something, son. A lot of carpenters will carry a caulking gun in their tool belt. He says, but we don't do that. He says, if the beauty is going to endure, the cut has to be perfect. And it's like he showed so much patience and grace with me. And um, I got another chance. To, uh, and I got to cut twice. <laughs> and, you know, I slowly learned how to, to live up um, to Joe's standards, which were really good. There was one time when he took me with him to a smaller job. And, and, and it was across town. And, and so he left instructions with the guys who were on the big job site. And what they had to do was um, build this, this wall and it had a door in it. And right next to the door was this, this huge window. And it would be kind of like a, a receptionist's uh, window. So we're gone for a couple of days. And when we come back that morning, uh, back on the big job site, um, the first thing Joe does is he's inspecting their work. And it was not pretty. Like, I don't know what they did, but like that wall, it wasn't plumb like in any direction. <laughs> and Joe's like, how can we hang a blankety blank door on a wall like this? And he made them tear it all down. And I mean, they had finished that wall. Like everything was trimmed out. The electricians had, had wired it and put in the outlets. The drywall guys had, had covered it with drywall and the, the drywall finishers were, were, were giving it a go. And they just had to destroy everything that they had done. 
uh, and, and start over. I felt really bad for the guy who was on the receiving end of all of that. But he, he had used like one of these small, like two foot levels. And that's a real challenge and, and probably not adequate for you know, building a, a nine foot wall and making sure that it's, it's right. Um, what he needed to use was one of those really long um, framing levels or um, a, a plumb bob like this. Um, it's a plumb line. It's affectionately called a, a plumb bob by people. And I actually kind of like that because I think it makes it a little more personal. And I love the name Bob. Um, but the way a, a, a plumb line works is like if you're going to build a wall, then you know you you've got it in place, and then you you hang this you hang this um, plumb line at a certain point. Maybe it's attached to the ceiling little bit away from the stud of your wall and you wait until this weight at the end of it is completely still and stops moving and then and then you can measure and you can check you know it's two inches there oh it's an inch and three quarters there so you pull your line and then it's like perfectly plumb so a plumb line, or a plumb bob, it, it's used not only to make sure that a new wall is, is good, you can also examine an old wall uh, to make sure that it's still good, that it's still straight. And, and that's kind of what's going on in our text for today from Amos. Now this is the thing about Amos. He he didn't want this gig of being a prophet. He was a shepherd. He was a cattleman. He was a, a dresser of sycamores, the Bible says, um, which means he was kind of a, a purveyor of bitter figs and, and mulberries. But God grabbed hold of him and told him to go and told him to prophesy. And, and so um, in, our, in our text, actually, beginning with chapter 7, are, are the first of several visions. They're like five visions between chapters 7 through 9. And three of them are in chapter 7. And, and the first one is God showed Amos that he was going to send these locusts. And we know what locusts do. They destroy the crop. And it was kind of at a vulnerable time for the crop. And that's, that's what God says, um, uh, that the locusts are coming. And like, Amos has compassion for the people. If, if, you, if you go and, and read that, he's just like, oh Lord, please forgive them. He begs God to forgive them because he, he says, how can Jacob stand? Like they're so small. They'll, they'll never survive this, this kind of judgment. And so God relents. God changes God's mind. Um, I love it when that happens. It, it's a reminder to me that um, my prayers matter. Well, God shows Amos another vision, and this time it's fire. And this fire that um, it's like a shower, it, it devours the great deep, and it was eating up the land. And same thing, Amos says, Oh God, uh, you know, I beg you, cease, don't do this. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And once again, God relents. And then the third vision 
is the plumb line vision. So God is, is, is holding a, a plumb line um, against a wall originally built with a plumb line. And, and, and all of this is, you know, this uh, divine judgment that's coming. There's this impending doom. And even though God relents, um, He holds up this, this, this plumb line. And so, so what's happening is, is God is, is checking to see if Israel is still good. Like, if the wall is still straight. And they're not. They're leaning. And you know... You've probably seen it, especially around here. Like you, you drive around or you're hiking and there's this old barn. And man, that barn just seems to be leaning. And it still seems like an active barn. There are cows in there. There's a tractor in there. It's like, holy cow. <laughs> Literally. Like it just seems like it fall over at any moment. Like a leaning wall is, is dangerous. And God is saying that, that Israel is this this crumbling, leaning wall, and, and that something has to be done. And so the, the question that we might ask is, is like, like, well, what's their problem? And if, if you read the whole book of Amos, you, you can get, kind of get at it. Um, when Amos be- becomes a prophet, when, when God kind of breaks into his life and says, hey, I need you to go do this, I need you to say this, um, Israel is, is kind of in an, an unprecedented time. First of all, there's, there's peace in the land, but there's also a lot of wealth, and there's a lot of power and, and prestige. Like, they got it going on, and they really like that. And so when, when you read um, in, in Amos 4.1, it says, uh, hear this word, this is what Amos says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on Mount Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring something to drink. And then in chapter 5, verse 12, For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who push aside the needy at the gate. You know, God's plumb line has a lot to do with our relationship with the poor. So there's this showdown in our text. Showdown between Amos, the shepherd and purveyor of bitter figs and mulberries, and Amaziah. Amaziah is the priest at Bethel. And he's actually the priest of one of the most important shrines in, in the entire kingdom of Israel. You might remember Bethel. That's where their ancestor, Jacob, had that famous dream, you know, the dream about uh, the ladder. And I, I don't know if you remember uh, when um, Jacob wakes up from the dream. He was afraid. This, this is what he says. In Genesis chapter 28, then Jacob woke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, How awesome is this place! 
This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And so he names it Bethel, which means house of God. So it's interesting to me in our story, in our text, that Amaziah, like, he never mentions God once. When he feels threatened by Amos' prophecy, he doesn't appeal to God. He runs to the king. And in, in his defense of everything, did, did you notice what he says, how he references this sanctuary at Bethel? He doesn't call it God's sanctuary. He doesn't call it God's place, this gateway to heaven. Uh, he says it's the king's sanctuary. I read a little bit from this theologian and biblical scholar by the name of Stephen Edmondson in, in talking about um, this, whole, this whole plumb line thing and God's standards, God's expectations. Uh, he says, this standard is integral to God's people from their very creation, that we are a people made for justice and formed for righteousness and faithfulness. It's calling us back to our life, to the truth of our, uh, of our very being, which is kind of like the plumb line held against a wall that was built with a plumb line. Like God calls us back to what God intended from the very beginning. And Stevenson talks about Athanasius, one of our early church fathers. And Athanasius wrote the book on the Incarnation, or essay on the Incarnation. And he says, Athanasius says, that an essential dimension of Christ's redemptive work is in his reformation of God's image within us, which is deformed with our fall into sin. So with our fall, we so warp this image that we are rapidly deteriorating into this heap of rubble, just like Amos's wall. And so Athanasius says that it's Christ who plumbs us to the depths. So, whenever it was lunchtime, we would all take lunch break at about the same time, and we would gather in that front room. It was, I don't know what it had been 200 years ago, but some, you know, some kind of great parlor, and we would sit on the floor and we'd lean against the wall with our lunches, and everybody was in there. So it would be the carpenters and the electricians and the plumbers and the drywall guys. Um, and they loved making fun of me. You know, like just telling me who it was I was going to become. You know, that I, likening me to this greedy televangelist. Like, um, saying I was going to be this, you know, snake oil salesman. Um, I know they were just kidding. But it had a, a profound effect on me. I was 22 years old. I just started seminary. But I began right then thinking about how I was going to measure success. Like, what was that going to look like for me? You know, they say, uh, 
you're not really successful until someone can claim that they sat beside you in school. <laughs> My wife Chan, when she was at Indiana State University, um, she actually sat by Larry Bird's younger brother. She says, guess who's in my economics class? I'm sitting by Larry Bird's baby brother, Eddie. Eddie Bird. I thought that was so cool. But the question that like emerges for me, and I think it's a good question for us, that comes out of this text, this prophecy from Amos, is... What is our plumb line? Like, what tells us that things are aligned? That, that life is how life should be? I think it's an important question. Years ago, actually, I had just started in the ministry. Um, I went to a, a pastor's conference in, in Florida. A retreat lasted several days. Um, Reverend Peter Lord was giving this lecture, and, and, and in this lecture, he talked about four ways um, that, that churches measure success. And, and he says that you measure the bottom line, and that, and that the bottom line is the matter of greatest concern. It's like, what's most important to you? And he says there is um, the institutional way. So like, like institutional churches, like they measure success with statistics he said so like how many people can we count how many dollars uh, can can we count um, how big is the facility how big is our temple how beautiful is our sanctuary those kinds of things like those are the measures um, that, that that we hold up um, and strive for the, the second category was um, the informational category. So like the, the church that um, measures success by how much knowledge you have. So that could be like um, how much of the Bible have I memorized? Like we really put on a pedestal the guy who can just quote scriptures left and right. Um, or maybe it's also knowledge of, of our beliefs and our, our doctrines and in particular the correct doctrine so that we can share that with people and witness that to people like this is the right way to be and that kind of feeds into the first one so that there can be more numbers to count you know that sort of thing uh, the third category or way that a church might measure success um, is experiential now obviously it's it's our experiences that matter so the questions that emerge, you know, from this kind of um, assessment would be, um, are you saved? Um, are you born again? Have you had that experience in your life? Like a, an Apostle Paul getting knocked off of his horse on the road to Damascus experience. Um, another question might, might be, have you experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you know? Um, and, and some would say, you'll know this because you're speaking in tongues, you know, in the spiritual language, um, which is this, this mysterious, um, beautiful kind of thing. But it's like, have you had that, have you had that experience? Um, there, there's that, do you worship God with hands held high, you know, or do you kind of keep it low, keep it closer to the vest kind of thing? What, what is your experience? And then the fourth one he said, 
is, is relational. Are you a lover of Jesus? Do you genuinely love each other? So you know, this guy who knew a lot about the law, he, he approaches Jesus and says, which is the, the greatest commandment in the law? Like, how does God measure success? And, and, and you might remember that, you know, Jesus' response kind of um, paints this image in their minds of building a wall with, with two pillars. One of them is love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the, and the other one is love your neighbor as yourself. And, and you might remember that Jesus says everything hangs on these two commandments. Everything. The law, the prophets, all of it is held up to that. Are you a lover of Jesus? And do you love each other? That's what it means to be the church. Amen.